From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we speak with Dr. Kaveh Abbasian, a researcher and a former student activist about the ongoing anti-government protests on university campuses across Iran. Later in the program, Algerian researcher and environmental justice activist Hamza Hammoshin joins us to talk about the United Nations Climate Summit, COP27, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and the intense connection between climate and social justice and human rights. Stay with us. Kiane Pirfalak, 10 years old. Seper Mahsudi, 14 years old. Artin Rahmani, 14 years old. Earlier this week, all three were killed with live ammunition during the state's brutal crackdown on an uprising that is calling for the downfall of the regime and has now entered its third month. In one of his last posts on social media, Artin wrote, quote, One day we will be fine, but I may not be around that day. If you're still around, laugh for me and laugh loud from the bottom of your heart. End of quote. As this week's anti-government protests and work stoppages also commemorate the November 2019 protests, students on Iran's university campuses continue to defy the bloody crackdown in the country. Universities in Iran are known as bastions of freedom in recognition of nearly 80 years of a student struggles for democracy and social justice. Four decades after the regime's, quote, Islamic cultural revolution that resulted in closure of campuses for three years and purging of all the students, faculty, and staff considered disloyal to the regime, the university remains a site of opposition and revolt against the state. To understand student activism during the ongoing protests and the historical backdrop to it, we turn to Dr. Kave Abbasian, a former student activist, a filmmaker, researcher, and a lecturer in film and media practice at the University of Kent in Britain. Shahram Agamir started the interview by asking Kave to characterize student activism during the ongoing wave of protests in Iran. Student activism in this current wave of protests, I think in order to be able to explain this properly, I need to give it a bit of context and also historical context. The current wave of protest in Iran didn't start from the universities. Sometimes in contemporary Iranian history, there are certain things that start inside the universities or student-centered movement around student demands, which usually in Iran gets out of hand and gets into more political stuff as well. But this time, as you know, this movement was sparked in Kurdistan by the death of Jina Amini at the hands of the morality police. In Tehran, in fact, whose body was taken to Kurdistan to the city of Sarkez and was buried there. And at that funeral, with the simple sentence on her gravestone, clandestine gravestone, which read as, Dear Gina, you didn't die. Your name will become a Rams in Kurdish, which can be translated into a code word or also a symbol. 
And then the women in that funeral who took off their scarves as a protest against the morality police and essentially against the Islamic Republic of Iran and chanted woman, life, freedom. This incredible, glorious slogan of this movement in Iran, which, as you know, started in Kurdistan. The slogan itself had its roots in Kurdistan and the feminist movement in Kurdistan. And this slogan quickly spread around Iran. And even in the first day, we didn't know. We weren't, I, as someone who constantly is aware and looks at the student movement in Iran because of my own past, I wasn't sure if the student movement was going to join this movement or not. I was a little bit worried as well, because I've been thinking and talking to people, former student activists and current student activists. What do you think this university is doing these days? How much do you think the oppression from the previous years has been successful in silencing the voice of the universities and voice of the students? And people weren't really too sure. And especially because universities were shut down for two years due to the COVID lockdown. And it was the first year after two years of kind of no physical presence on campus that students were actually getting to university. And this funeral happened right before, I think it was almost one week or just a few days before students got to the university. So I was quite interested to see how the students were going to react. We had already seen on social media young people showing so much anger towards what had happened and joining in chanting the slogans around Iran and producing artworks and taking on to the streets in protest. But it was the moment and the day students got to the university that things really went a few steps further because universities, as in Persian, we call it the barricade or bastion of freedom because so many universities in Iran are literally surrounded by walls and surrounded by fences. As a result of that, students inside those universities actually do have some sort of an independence from what's going on outside. There is this taboo of the police force getting inside the university, so they usually try not to do, although they have repeatedly done so and they have even murdered university students on campus and student domes. But there's still some sort of a separation between some university campuses and the streets. And it was those days that the students got into the universities and the universities immediately became these islands of resistance against the oppressive force of the security forces and oppressive force of their goons and thugs who in plain clothes who got to the streets. And it wasn't only Tehran University, which is traditionally and historically a center of resistance and struggle for freedom and equality, but it was so many other universities. It was Isfahan, it was Tabriz, it was Nushirwani in Babul, it was Mazandaran, it was in the south, where so many universities in Kurdistan, all the way to the so-called holy city of Mashhad, the Ferdousi University of Mashhad, and not only these so-called state universities or public universities, but also private universities, state-run private universities, Azad, the Azad universities, but not only those, but also the Payamenur universities and smaller scale private universities in so many cities. And it wasn't this time just a handful of major universities who got involved, but hundreds of universities. As a result of this, hundreds of students got arrested and so much happened. But this proves that universities in this round of revolutionary movement 
proof to be able to hold on and carry on the movement. Because if you remember two months ago, when the movement happened and we had this explosion of resistance, explosion of struggle in the streets of Iran, in the factories, in the hospitals, in the universities. But then after a week, the police force and the security force managed to to an extent, and I don't want to say completely, to an extent, silence, and they killed hundreds of people, but silence so many of the streets. But what kept that fire burning, what kept that movement going on was, first, the universities, of course, across Iran, but also high schools and middle schools and even primary schools. So I would say universities this time around managed to keep the struggle going, and as a result of that, people started coming back to the streets as well. Workers continued with their strikes. Workers continued to occupy their factory floors as well. As a former student activist, I was quite proud of what this new generation of students have achieved. Kave, what forms of collective action have the students opted for in this wave of protests? And what are their main slogans? Are these slogans more or less homogeneous across the country? That is a good question. So what have students done? Is it like they just chanted some slogans and just occupied the campuses? Or what else did they do? Did they manage to actually create a connection between the several social movements? And this is a sort of question that I've been involved with since early 2000s when I was a student activist as well. We at the time tried to kind of get involved with more grassroots social movements as against the type of student movement that the reformists preferred to do. It's sort of look at the above, look at the this and that model and try to achieve something by negotiating with the powers and not looking at the power of the actual people in the various social movements. I think this student movement, despite the gap between this one and the previous student movements, and despite the crackdown, despite the shutting down of universities, they proved that there is a connection. They still understand and know the history of the student movement. They proved that there is still the tradition of activism in student movement has carried on and has continued. And they have also proved that they are as creative as ever and even more in coming up with new ways of struggle, new ways of showing their solidarity with the people out in the streets. And this is evident in the type of slogans that were chanted first in the universities and then got into the streets. Some of these are from a few years ago, from four years ago, five years ago, slogans such as non kar azadi bread jobs, freedom, which was chanted for the first time inside universities, or for example, which means reformist, fundamentalist, your time is over, you know, against this game between different factions of the establishment and to say that we are against the entirety of the regime and not just one faction. Obviously, the students were very quick in continuing and repeating the chants, the slogan of woman, life, freedom. But then there are some new slogans as well, again, which mostly started in universities and continued and carried on. For example, Azadi Hatamost, Jina Esmeramzamost. Freedom is our right. Jina is our code word. Jina or Masta is the name of the Kurdish girl who was murdered. And Margbar Satamgar to Shah Bashachirahbar, which is a slogan hated by the monarchists, but at the same time very much prevalent in the student movement and in some 
streets and cities as well, especially in Kurdistan. And that is um, down with the tyrant, be it a king or a supreme leader or a leader. Or we swear on the blood of our comrades that we will stand until the end. Or for example, every single life taken, will have thousands behind it or tup tank musalsal digar asar nadarad be madaram beguid digar dokhtar nadarad means cannons tanks and machine guns no longer have any effect on us go tell my mother that she no longer has a daughter as i was saying they students see the continuity this is a slogan from the 1979 revolution but they have changed the one word in it and that is the word daughter this slogan originally was chanted go tell my mother that she no longer has a son feminization exactly of slogan. that's what these revolutionaries are doing is another one similar one i will kill i will kill the one who killed my brother which is again one of the slogans of the 1979 movement and revolution which has been changed into which is i will kill i will kill the one who killed my sister and these are slogans that students are showing so much creativity in spreading into the movement but apart from that even when a university campus for example is completely oppressed students are killed some while during protests and some out in the streets joining other protests in the streets and even when hundreds of students have been banned from entering the campus or banned from entering the student dorms there are still students for example the students of the music faculty of the Arts University of Tehran who occupied a section of the campus to sing Barpakis. It's a revolutionary song uh, from Chile, sang first by Kilapayun and then by Inti Illimani, the well, Pueblo Unido, Kamasera Vencido, the people united will never be defeated. These students have created a new song for it, a new lyrics for it, aligned with the Women Life Freedom Movement, with the names of the people who have been killed and for the hopes and the goals of this movement and sang it in a corner of the university recorded themselves without showing their faces and this video has been shared hundreds of thousands of times if not millions of times and these at the time when the streets were quiet and the establishment had attacked the campuses these sorts of revolutionary songs that music students have done created so much hope among so many people and then later on we saw that same songs were being sung in the streets so in that sense i think students as well as carrying the flag of this revolutionary movement they have managed to create some sort of historical connection between this movement and the previous students movements as well as previous revolutionary movements in iran and also previous revolutionary movements and socialist or left-wing anti-establishment anti-tyrannical movements around the world kave i was going to bring up this issue of performance art and music production on university campuses but let's talk about it since you mentioned that universities as you mentioned have become pivotal centers for production of impressive performance art and revolutionary music with vitality and inspiring lyrics One thing that stands out in these artistic productions is a complete absence of religious signs, symbols, mm-hmm. imagery, mm-hmm. and narratives. The art seems to capture the street sentiments. They are in contrast with the revolutionary upheavals that led to the 1906-1911 
Constitution Revolution and the 1979 Revolution in Iran. And there is no attempt to reclaim Islam the way that we saw during the 2009 protests. Yes, this is a very good point. I remember when the Green Movement happened, I had already had to leave Iran and start a life in exile. And that was, I think, the first, second year of my life in the UK as a political exile, as a political refugee. As someone who comes from left-wing secular background, I did not really like the fact that the so-called leaders of the Green Movement, Karubi or Musavi, or the people around them, constantly try to reclaim what they called the true Islam or the golden age of the imam. They kind of created this nostalgic idea of the 1980s during which Ruhollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic, the first supreme leader, was alive to say, at his time things were great, so we need to go back to the Islam that was in power during that time, and now we have kind of diverted from the true path of the Islamic revolution. I didn't agree with that. I didn't think that was, first of all, a really honest way of picturing the 1980s, a decade of massacres and bloodshed. But also, some people obviously... Not everyone in the Green Movement, and I know so many people in the Green Movement who didn't go along with that, but we saw so many people chanting Islamic chants, such as Allahu Akbar, for example, on their rooftops, which was, again, an imitation of something that happened during the 1979 revolution. But in this time round, there is no such sign. Maybe because one of the first things that people started to protesting was this political Islam, the Islam that has a political power and manages to oppress anyone who thinks otherwise. And that, for example, it shows itself in the case of the compulsory hijab. So because one of the first things was this politicized Islam, I think this made it clear that this movement, this revolutionary movement, was going to take on a very secular route. Not anti-Islamic, it isn't. You know, it's in no way anti-Islamic. There are so many Muslims involved in this movement. I mean, for God's sake, there are people being massacred while doing their Friday praying in Zahedan. That's what I don't understand with so many Western liberals and Western leftists accusing the movement or accusing the supporters of movements as being Islamophobic. Okay, I'm diverting from my main point. But also, this is also the fact that some mosques and some uh, religious buildings have also been used as basis for the security forces or as places of holding people who have been recently arrested. So there is this kind of web of lies and web of confusion going on around the role of Islam. What is so very extremely clear is that there are so many Muslims, people in full chador and full, people who choose to have their hijab involved in this movement. And we see them getting beaten by the security forces. We see them mourning for their sons and daughters at the funerals and in graveyards. We see so many of them being arrested while having their full hijab on. And at the same time, we see so many people who decide not to wear that hijab and who decide not to perform Islam in the way that Islamic Republic want or not to perform at all. Now, they might decide to go on an atheist path in their life. So there are all these pluralism of protesters going on. And it's one of the other things that's very interesting is that there are people coming from the Sunni background or Shi background are involved in this, as well as people coming from other faiths or no faith at all, which means that there are people from Kurdistan all the way to Baluchistan, all the way to Mazandaran and Gilan in the north, 
and in Khuzestan. So it's not any more just the big cities that are involved, but people from really tiny villages. I saw this village that I still can't remember the name of near Bandar Khamir in the south of Iran, village or town, whatever you want to call it. The village apparently has about 10,000 inhabitants from the crowd I saw in the videos. Everyone was out there. And I had to look on Google map to see where that place is. What's the population of it? I was really surprised to see even in that tiny village, this many people are out in the streets with women leading the way in the traditional clothes, which include hijab, which means that these people are actually protesting against tyranny for freedom and equality. Hence, you see the reflection of that in art production including the university campuses who are actually engaged in this activity. In any protest movement or an uprising where there is uncertainty about the future, mingled with violent repression, it's not uncommon to see bystanders who are sympathetic but are reluctant to join. Do we have a sense for the rate of active participation in the student protest? Well, I don't really have anything like that. And because of the situation, it's not really possible to conduct any, what I can with confidence say, is that this is the largest student movement pretty much ever since the 1979 movement. In the 1979 revolutionary movement, which resulted in an eventual groundbreaking revolution, so many universities were involved. But the thing is, there weren't so many universities at the time. Since then, we have had hundreds of universities being added to the, to the number of universities that are operating around Iran, as well as public, state, and small private universities, which means that in terms of numbers, this is the largest student movement in Iran ever. Even in the post-1979 movements that we've had in the late 1990s, in 1999, the famous beginning of the waves of student movements started in 1999. In 2003, which is where I was involved in 2007 and 2008, which is again where I was involved, and also 2009 during the Green Movement, none of them reached the broadness and the plurality of the current wave of student movement. In 2009, Green Movement, so many small cities and so many provinces didn't even come out in protest. But this time round, what is evident is that this wave of student protest has lasted more than two months and it's happening in so many universities. In as many universities as I could even count, like there were so many universities that I didn't know the name of. So if you see a university such as Shahid Beheshti, for example, coming out in that number up to a thousand, that means the rate of dissatisfaction among students is extremely high. When I was at the University of Tehran and we ran, for example, a National Student Day demonstration in 2007, the number of students who attended that demonstration was about, I would say, 1,500. But that was at a time when we could see that there are so many other students who are happy to get involved, but they couldn't be bothered that much because they didn't want to lose the opportunity to continue with their studies. Like, for example, someone like me got banned from further study for my student activism. But that meant that there were a majority of students who were quiet and who wouldn't really join the wave of student movement. What we see now inside universities is that it's not only no more 
a small student activism in which students gather in a demonstration for one hour, two hours, and then they go home. The number of students who gather on campuses these days, first of all, is beyond tens of thousands. Only in Tehran, beyond tens of thousands, when you count various universities. But also, they know that this will immediately be turned into violent crackdown by the security forces. As I mentioned, so many students got beaten up extremely badly and they ended up in hospitals or in many cases they don't go to hospitals because they're scared of getting arrested inside hospitals. But in some cases, they have been murdered with batons during the student protests. And this happened at least twice during the past two weeks in Tehran. So these students are the ones who have actually taken their life in their hands and, and ready to kind of sacrifice whatever they have from the opportunity of further study, from everything they've worked for in order to get into university, all the way to their life. So that tells you what the actual number of dissatisfaction among students is. There was this one Kurdish female student who was killed by multiple blows of a ton to her head. Yeah. Um, Yes, yes. And that's, uh, you just reminded me of that sad episode. Kaveh, given the restrictions of freedom of association in Iran and the state's ban on independent organizations and associations, what do we know about the leadership and organization of the ongoing student protests? Perhaps you can also share some of your experience as a student activist with us in this regard and tell us how you did it. Yes. The very interesting thing about this current wave of student movement, as I keep mentioning, there's the plurality of it and the complete lack of centrality in it. So there are no figureheads that I can name. I mean, there are barely any names that are coming out as the leaders of the student movement. There aren't. They don't really have one or two leaders. This is something that is taking place across so many universities. And as a result of the crackdown on independent student organizations, that's centrality, for example, the central committee of this and that student organization doesn't exist anymore. In a sense, it mirrors the movement in general. You're right. This is a movement without a leader, which can have its own shortcomings, but it also allows the movement to be fluid, to go in so many places that previously it wasn't possible to go. It also takes this opportunity away from the Islamic Republic to just arrest or murder this and that leader and destroy the movement. This is not a movement that has formed around one person or two people or even 10 figureheads. It's a movement that is extremely plural, fluid. It has its own local organizers, but no main figurehead. And that is very much visible inside the student movement. This is very different from when I was a student activist, but even more from the 1999, for example. One of the reasons behind it is that the complete change into the way students organize themselves and complete change in the politics of the student movement as well. The student movement since the 1990s up until now has moved from reformism to revolutionary politics. I was right in the middle when this gradual change was taking place. So I saw both sides as well. I could see that the reformist side of the student movement was very much figurehead-centered and it looked up to the people in power for possibilities of negotiations, while at the same time this left-wing, more revolutionary student movement that was gaining ground was very much organizer-centered. There was no main figurehead, there was no main leader, 
And as a result of the crackdown, there was no organization that was allowed to function inside universities. I'm referring to the first decade of the 2000s. That's something that we can talk about in more detail. Sure. There are approximately 3.8 million students in close to 2,600 institutions of higher education in Iran, with nearly half of these students being women. Women, life, freedom has been the central slogan in the current wave of protests in Iran, including those taking place on university campuses, as you mentioned earlier. The slogan suggests that self-determination and a life with dignity in the society is contingent upon women's freedom. I mean, at mm-hmm. least that's my understanding of it. What do we know about the extent to which female students are present in the leadership of student mobilization? That's a very good point. I remember when I entered universities, I have to remember everything in two different calendars. I think I entered university in 2002. At the time when I arrived, the reformists, you know, the Daftar Tahkim, Bahdad Anjuman, Hayy Islamid, the Islamic Association of Students, one of them was called, another one was called the Bureau of Strengthening of the Unity, which were the reformist organizations inside the student movement, which have their roots in the 1980s and the crackdown on the student movement. So these were the organizations that were allowed to function inside universities, and they were mostly men. Of course, the body of the students were mixed. They were almost 50-50, men and women. But the student movement itself was very much male-dominated. The leaders, the so-called elected leaders of the student movement and the names since 1999 had become synonymous with the reformist student movement, many of whom continued their roles into politics, either inside or outside. But at the time, every name that I can think of was a man. It was extremely male-dominated. And this was, to a degree, uh, reflected on... Even the non-Islamic student movement as well. And I don't want to say that the new wave of left-wing and revolutionary student activism was also male-dominated. It wasn't. In fact, the new left-wing students, one of whom was myself, was actually quite more liberal and mixed in that sense. And also tried to bring feminism into the student movement, also tried to bring women's right into the student movement, for example, organizing 8th of March, International Women's Day inside universities for the first time since the 1980s, and also and also bringing back slogans such as the measure of the freedom in a society can be measured by the freedom of its women. And also, even as early as 2007, we had brought slogans such as no to compulsory hijab. But at the same time, I cannot deny the fact that in terms of number, there were still more men involved in even in the revolutionary and left-wing and socialist movement as well, which when I look back now, what I see, the difference is that, okay, there were more women included in the left-wing movement after student movement, and there were more women's right and feminist theories and arguments and slogans were involved, but we had still not arrived at an ideal point, which I assume (laughs) we will continue to try to achieve. But what I see nowadays inside Iranian universities, and it's not just this year, it started in the previous decade of the student movement. What I see now is that the leading role of female students, I mean, from as early as 2017, you know, when the first new round of revolutionary movement started, 
started taking ground. We saw universities joining these movements. And at the same time, so many female students were involved and were leading the chants and leading the rallies and leading the student activism. And it continued in the Auburn demonstrations. And it continues today. When I see today's universities and today's campuses, I mostly see women in some cases. In some cases, I only the women and even universities such as Azara, which is a female-only university, which was supposed to be a bastion of Islamism in Iran, one of those universities established by the Islamic Republic to create these ideal Islamic women. It produced women who are now protesting against the Islamic Republic and against the compulsory hijab, taking their hijab off at a university in which chador is compulsory. So that gives me hope for the future of student movement, whatever the immediate conclusion of the current wave is going to be. Just to be clear, you're referring to the period between 2017 and 2019 or so. Yes. This is, again, perhaps speculation But there seems to be some coordination between university students on different campuses in every city and even among different universities across Iran. What is your understanding of this collaboration? That collaboration, I'm afraid, is uh, not based on any previously well thought out organization. This is something very naturally taking place as we go. And at least this is my understanding. One of the reasons my wave of student movements in late 2000s was heavily crushed was because we had started and begun and aimed to create a national, a countrywide organization, independent organization, a non-Islamic, non-state-run organization inside universities. We had called it Students for Freedom and Equality, one of the reasons the security forces and the intelligence service could not stand us anymore was that. And because of that, every few years, students try to find a new way of self-organizing. And every time they get crushed, for example, in the decade after us, the second decade of the 2000s, in 2010s, students started using the Shurahai Senfi, the student-elected committees that deal with student matters inside every university. So students who wanted to politically organize themselves started to use these organizations, which already existed, they were originally intended to deal with student food and accommodation and then the way they are being treated by their lectures. You know, very basically, this is something that is supposed to deal with student matters. And students started to organizing themselves, you know, around these pre-existing organizations, not only for their students' issues, but also for larger political demands as well. As a result of this, the Islamic Republic started cracking down on these so-called student unions or Shurai Senfi as well. As a result of this, in this wave of protest, wave of movement, there is absolutely no organization left that Islamic Republic, the security forces haven't already completely crushed. And as a result of that, students are organizing on a very different level. And for the first time, at least in my memory, we are seeing art students in thousands getting involved in the current politics, which makes me think, I'm not talking about the student union, but the previous Islamic organizations inside the student movement, such as Islamic associations of students and the borough for strengthening the unity after attacking about that, that how much grip they had on the student movement, that the moment they kind of lost their previous power, 
the student movement has flourished in so many different ways. I mean, I'm not denying the fact that the Islamic Republic shouldn't have crushed those reformist student movement, student organizations. They shouldn't have. They had the right to exist. Even left-wing students sometimes would decide to candidate themselves and get elected and go inside certain Islamic associations. And there were so many Islamic associations post-2000, which included left-wing and revolutionary students. Many of my friends were in them. They had been used by so many different student activists for their own purposes. But that also tells me that in the lack of these previously established student organizations, the student movement has flourished in a very different way that is much more creative, much more plural, and in my opinion, much more grassroots. Dr. Kava Abbasian is a filmmaker, researcher, and lecturer in film and media practice at the University of Kent. As a film student at Tehran University of Art, he was involved in student activism and helped set up a countrywide student organization called Student for Freedom and Equality. In 2007, and as a result of a violent crackdown on the organization, Kave had to go underground and eventually leave the country. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Please join us next week for the second part of this interview. UN Climate Summit in Egypt provided an opportunity for Egyptian activists and their allies to highlight the gross human rights violations and one of the country's most prominent political prisoners, Ala Abdel Fattah, who has been in prison for nine years. In April, Ala went on a partial hunger strike. He went on a full hunger strike on November 6th to coincide with the start of the COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Atlas case and Egypt's appalling human rights record has raised an important question. Can we address the climate crisis while staying silent on human rights abuses? What is the relationship between climate and social justice and human rights? I put these questions to London-based Algerian researcher and climate justice activist Hamza Hamachin. 
just before we go into into the details of Farah Abdel Fattah's case, I think um, it's worth saying something at the outset. I'm just quoting. That those words, Ala Abdel Fattah, with his hunger strike and with his um, resistance acts, has been the most eloquent voice during this COP27, during the climate talks that took place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. The Egyptian regime or the military dictatorship thought that they could silence or hide all human rights crimes that they are committing and the dire situation of human rights in the country in terms of tens of thousands of political prisoners, repression, suppression of freedoms, but it couldn't. Those questions rose again and again in various events, in various media articles, and this is thanks to some of the actions and bravery of activists like Ala Abdel Fattah. I've been following his case in the last few weeks, and the situation was really preoccupying, especially that the Egyptian regime, through um, their foreign minister, was just denying that Ala Abdel Fattah was going doing a hunger strike, denying that Ala Abdel Fattah is a dual citizen, and trying to say, let's focus just on, on, on the climate talks. He was on a partial hunger strike with only 100 calories consumed per day for more than 200 days. And then he decided to escalate the actions on the 1st of November, going into a full hunger strike, and then stopping drinking water at the start of the climate summit on the 6th of November. But like you, I heard that he broke the hunger strike a few days ago in the midst of the lack of information. And we didn't know what's, what, what was happening because the family, especially his mom, was trying to see him for three or four consecutive days without any news. But in the last few days, he sent a written message to his mom saying, he's okay, he broke the strike and he wants to see his family basically today. I saw on Twitter that his health condition deteriorated and the family was going to do um, a press release on social media, but I didn't follow that yet. So I think the information would be coming in a few hours and we'll have a better sense of of what's going on. From all the media coverage, and also the actions, the civil society actions at the climate summit, I think CC failed to rebrand itself, or let's say it, to whitewash its human crimes and to greenwash its environmental destruction and crimes as well. Because Sisi wanted the COP27, the climate summit, as an opportunity to rebrand itself, to make a good facade for itself. But at the same time, it wanted also to attract foreign investment, to attract a lot of climate finance, because the debt burden is becoming unsustainable. So I don't think on the first matter, which is whitewashing and greenwashing, that it has been successful because the question of human rights has been at the center of this this summit. And it is good 
It is good for the climate justice movement to have done this, to have linked the question of climate justice to question of democratization, to question of freedom of expression, freedom of organization, because these issues are really important for any meaningful actions around tackling the climate crisis. We cannot talk about climate justice without you know, having the right spaces or the adequate spaces to express, to organize. And organizing that climate conference, the COP27 in, um, in a military dictatorship like Egypt, for me, I don't think it was a genuine or let's say an innocent choice because the, the COP process mm-hmm. as a whole, I feel, is becoming less democratic. I would say it's bankrupt and failing. For 30 years, we have seen promises and no actions at all. And the choice of Egypt and Emirates next year mm-hmm. as the host of the climate talk is not, is not innocent at all. Our enemies know what they're doing. That's why I say that space is becoming less democratic, more restrictive, more suppressive of expression of organizing the civil society because you know the leaders of this world understand that the pressures are gonna come from the outside, are gonna come from the climate justice, the global climate justice movement, are gonna come from grassroots groups, from social movements. So that's why they are restricting you know those spaces and those freedoms and what better places like Egypt and, and Emirates. Mm. I think they are the best places to not allow for civil society to organize and express itself. But even though, even though there are some spaces, there are some voices, subversive voices out there that we can hear, thanks you know, to, to the amplification of the social media. And I think that's, um, that's positive in itself. Hossam Behgat, Executive Director of Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, He's a prominent um, Egyptian human rights lawyer, said um, in an interview, we had room for resistance. This is pre-CC 2013. We had the ability to engage in a strategic litigation, to access members of parliament to lobby, to spread and disseminate our information through independent media, to organize at community level, to give direct support to the most at risk, most affected, most vulnerable communities. None of this is available right now. How do you think this lack of political space in in Egypt impact how Egyptian civil society interacted with other civil society groups at the summit? And more broadly, how strong was the presence other Middle Eastern and North African civil society and environmental justice groups in this summit. I'm not seeing it anywhere. It's not getting any coverage, at least not in the English language press. It is, it is a very important question you know, to tackle because um, the listeners might not be aware of what happened you know, before the start of the summit in terms of the selection process and the vetting process of organizing Egyptian organization and activists who would be attending the climate talks. Like the brief answer to your question, Egyptian organizations, or let's say genuine and serious Egyptian organizations and activist engagement and interaction with international civil society and and activists and scholars and journalists 
I would say has been very limited in Sharm el-Sheikh for various reasons. One is the oppressive nature of the, the Egyptian regime, the lack of spaces, the repression of organization and civil society activists. So there is a climate of fear. And I noticed that during my visits um, to Egypt this year, the people, first of all, did not know how to participate because there was a huge lack of information on how to participate, on how to register, to attend the COP. And then there was also anxiety and fear in terms of if I participate, what would happen to me? Maybe I would be vetted, maybe I would appear in certain spaces or with some organizations that would be critical of, um, of the military dictatorship. What would happen to those organizations? And I, and I sent this. First of all, lack of transparency. There was almost no information in the months leading to the climate talk and then anxiety and fear. And the second element is the vetting process. So all Egyptian organizations or Egyptian activists who wanted, let's say, to participate in, in, in COP27 as on their own names or their own organizations need to be vetted by the Egyptian authorities, which means that all those perceived to be, let's say, subversive voices or in the opposition or doing some critical work um, in the Egyptian civil society would be excluded. And a lot of them have been on those terms. So I would say, I would venture to say that most of the Egyptians participating or Egyptian organization participating in the climate talks are not genuine organizations. Suddenly they mushroom to become climate justice and environmental justice activists and champions. They are pro cc and they, were, they are there to whitewash and greenwash the crimes of the Sisi regime. But having said that, uh, there, there is always a but. Having said that, the serious and genuine Egyptian organizations and activists, either environmental or people working on the energy or human rights or in the human rights sector, have seen the COP27 as an opportunity to put a spotlight on the difficult, extremely difficult situation that they are going through. And activists like Hussein Bahgat and, you know, Meda Masr have been trying, the, the independent media outlet Meda Masr have been trying to put their voices out there by making COP27 as a hook, by trying to, let's say, come out from their isolation, connect with the international climate justice movement, put uh, some emphasis on what is really happening in Egypt, not only when it comes to human rights abuses, but also environmental crime and abuses, and also put a highlight or highlight what the country is going through in terms of climate impacts, because Egypt is one one of the countries most impacted by the climate crisis in terms of droughts, in terms of um, very high temperatures, in terms of the threat 
of the sea level rises. You have whole towns on the Mediterranean that are threatened by, you know, disappearance in a few decades. This is about Egypt specifically, or Egyptian activists and organizations. In terms of activists from the region, let's say from, from, from the Arab region, their participation has been, has been limited as well for various reasons. Let's not forget that borders are closed in the region and it is really difficult to get visas to go to Egypt. You need to plan your trip ahead and you need to have a kind of an organization that would give you an accreditation, a badge, so you can go to the COP. Of course, there is participation from the youth, um, but I would say it is very limited. A few weeks before uh, the summit, a number of activists, they gathered in um, Tunis to prepare for COP27. What did come out of that gathering? Actually, I was part of that gathering. I, I participated in, the, in that gathering in Tunis. So it was um, mainly youth climate camp. So targeting the youth from the region, especially the Arab region and the African continent. And that was the focus. It gathered around 400 people from various parts of the world. And I think before going into the details, Maliha, about this, I think it's worth saying why it was done in in Tunisia. The reason, because there was no possibility to do it in Egypt. And for the listeners, and I think it's very important to say this, at least in the COPs that I participated in, there is always an independent, autonomous space for civil society. Some people call it People's Summit, others call it the Counter Summit or the Counter Climate Summit, where civil society or the international climate justice movement gather from various parts of the world, organize workshops, strategize, Mm -hmm. learn from different experiences and build strong alliances and try to create, you know, that counterbalance, that counterforce to the inside. It's a people's climate. Exactly. Exactly. But this year in Egypt, that was not possible. There was no people's climate summit. There there was no outside space. Everything was the inside. And you can imagine the level of surveillance and militarization and uh, like they are following activists and people and people are aware of this. So the idea was, okay, where can we do it in the region? And I think the most most appropriate place was, you know, Tunisia. Relatively speaking, it has much more space, you know, to organize and and do this kind of of activities. We organized like more than 130 workshops tackling various aspects of, um, of climate justice and environmental justice. And there was also a stream around the COP process. And I believe many of the people or the youth who participated in that gathering in Tunisia are present in Sharm el-Sheikh. The idea is, you know, to create some kind of awareness of the situation. But I don't think it was a kind of a strategic space, Meliha. Like, um, I think that needs to be built. Political situation in the region is very, very difficult. You know, creating trans-border movements and alliances in the region, from my experience, are extremely difficult. And the process is very, very slow. So I hope that next year, there will be a proper counter summit to the COP28 in Emirates. Because 
I believe that the global climate justice movement needs to see seeing the COP process, or let's say the inside negotiation as strategic. I feel it is a waste of time. These people have been talking for 30 years. The young Swedish Greta Thunberg activist, she was saying 30 years of blah, blah, and she's right. It's 30 years of blah, blah, and and no promises at all. And it's the same thing for COP27. Maybe we're going to talk about this a little bit later. It's the same thing from what I'm following. We need paradigmatic shift in our strategies and tactics. I'm not saying let's abandon the whole space altogether, but let's not see it as our focus, as the global climate justice movement. Because first of all, it is failing. It's becoming less democratic. So we definitely need to think about other tactics and other strategies. How successful have climate activists been in organizing collective actions and protests during the summit? It is monitored. It is a closed space. It is a closed space. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine the presence of security services, mm-hmm. military agents, and it is surveilled. And actually, in, in the few months before, we knew about this in the few months before the summit, because the, um, a lot of activists and people were asking, you know, the Egyptian hosts and authorities, okay, in every year, there is a march. Will be there a march in Sharm el-Sheikh? And you know, the declaration of the foreign minister at that time were really laughable, you know? He said, yes, of course, we're gonna allow for people to march and express themselves, but it would be inside a building. They are proud to say these things. So that's why I say it is very limited. Um, Those spaces are becoming much narrower, much more restricted, much more less democratic. So so we need to think about, you know, other avenues of resistance. Hamza Hamachin is a London-based Algerian researcher, activist, commentator, and a founding member of Algeria Solidarity Campaign and Environmental Justice North Africa. You can listen to my extended conversation with Hamza Homashin at statushour.com. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. Music